And so we're generally looking for markets that would have, say, average house price of $100,000 and up. And we're typically looking to be within, say, five miles of a super Walmart. And typically on all city utilities, city water, city sewer. You're listening to The Life & Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey everyone, Annie Dickerson here together with Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How about you? What's new? Oh, I'm doing great. Just, you know, we've got everything. I feel like everything's coming together this spring. You know, we've got our home renovations almost done. We're going to build out our deck. That's the last phase of the project. You and I both, we have big family trips coming up. So I think this is shaping up to be a pretty big year. Yeah. I feel like things with, you know, the pandemic are starting to kind of get a little better. We're kind of starting to see like little flickers of light at the end of the tunnel. So uh, yeah, it's definitely (laughs) better spring than it was last year for sure. (laughs) Indeed. And we just, we're coming off the heels as of this recording, we're coming off the heels of Tony Robbins Business Mastery. And I know that just, you know, blew our minds with all the different things that we should be thinking about when it comes to our business and just gave us so many new principles and ideas and strategies to continue to grow our business so that we can serve more of our listeners and our investors. Yes, was so great. So with that, let's talk a little bit about our conversation today with Jefferson Lilly. He is a mobile home park investment expert and educator, and he's the co-founder of Park Avenue Partners. And Jefferson talks a lot in this episode about why mobile home parks are so important for helping with the affordable housing crisis. And I asked him, you know, I mean, most people, when they think about mobile home parks, they think about, you know, trailers and trailer trash and that whole reputation that mobile home parks have. And we got to dive into a little bit of the star rating, which is similar to the multifamily ABCD tiers. And we got to understand a little bit more of the behind the scenes of what they look for when it comes to investing in mobile home parks. Yeah, it was, um, you know, such an interesting story to hear about his uh, loss that he had earlier on, you know, right when he first got into this mobile home park investing world. And I think it's a story of, of persistence is really the way I see it. And I think, you know, I always talk about this, that if you want to be successful in real estate investing, that you've got to have persistence, because without it, you're going to get hit with, you know, things that obstacles that come up. And it's just a natural part of what we do, not just in real estate investing, but in life as well. And if you don't have that drive and that persistence to see, you know, success at the end of all of this, it's, you know, it's going to be a long, long road ahead, um, one that you may even drop out of because you think it's too hard. And so it was just really interesting. We got to talk about that first loss that he had and, you know, what it took to kind of push, push beyond that. Um, But uh, yeah, it was just, was just a super inspirational story, I think overall. And um, one of my favorite parts of the show was hearing him talk about how he, uh, you know, engages in the communities that he, I know, I love that part too. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, he was talking about the, you know, the parades and swimming at the pool with his family and, you know, the residents at his park that he buys. And I thought, what a great way to really build community, right? And feel like we're kind of all in this together. 
and was a fun, fun episode. Mm-hmm. And Jefferson didn't start out syndicating his properties, but now he's well into syndications and funds. And so for any of our listeners out there who are new to the world of real estate syndications, whether it's through multifamily, through self-storage, or through mobile home parks like Jefferson does, a great place to start is to grab a free hardcover copy of our book, Investing for Good. And you can get all the details at goodegginvestments.com slash book. And now let's dive into our conversation with Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, Annie. Thank you for having me on. We're thrilled to have you here. Now, Jefferson, you have quite the track record in mobile home park investing. You've been investing in mobile home parks since 2007, and you've acquired 25 mobile home parks in 13 states, totaling over $56 million in value. That's huge. So now before we dive into all of that, which we're itching to do, start by telling us how you got into the mobile home park space in the first place. Well, as I say, when I woke up from the concussion, it just seemed like a good idea to buy a mobile home park. (laughs) Natural next thing to do. (laughs) Natural next thing. No, seriously. So I had spent uh, roughly a decade working uh, out in Silicon Valley in high tech, and I had been through the dot-com boom, bust, semi-resurgence, and I wanted some more passive, stable income to help smooth out the stock options and wild ride (laughs) that was small venture-backed businesses in high tech. So I thought initially I would buy an apartment building and just in doing a bunch of searches like at LoopNet on apartment buildings, there would be, you know, 99 apartments uh, listed in Lubbock, Texas or Peoria, Illinois, maybe at an eight cap. This was back in about 2005 pricing. And then there'd be one mobile home park at like a 10 cap. And I thought, that's absurd. I'm not buying a friggin' trailer park. And I delete the search and do the search again, again, and again, and kept getting hit over the head, probably be embarrassed to tell you how many times I had to get hit over the head before I finally thought, you know, well, I guess mobile home parks are multifamily. Why don't I look into this? And then it wasn't too long to, uh, you know, figure it out. We'll get into that on the show, like why it's a compelling niche. And I just basically went about assembling kind of an unofficial advisory board of about 10 guys that had all had or did own mobile home parks. And I started learning from them and running deals by them and would get thumbs up for some and thumbs down for others. And took about a year and a half then before I closed on my first property. That's how I got into it. It was, you know, part art, part science, part plan, part dumb luck, call it what you will. But that's how I got into the business. 
It's so smart that right off the bat, you built that advisory board. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't do. They don't lean on their network. They sort of just go in their corner and they just try to figure it out to emerge with the deal fully done. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't happen that way. I want to, before we get into the mobile home park, the details there, I wanted to go back. So you worked in Silicon Valley for 10 years in high tech. And so I think a lot of our investors, our listeners are in that space. They're, you know, they're working their W-2 jobs. They're looking at the options, right? And a lot of what we're taught is invest in the stock market. And so when you think back to that time, before you got into this whole mobile home park space or started looking at multifamily, what were you investing in back then? Or were you thinking much about your finances and growing your wealth at that point? Uh I was, have been interested in investing since I was a teenager. I actually bought my first stock when I was 17 and I had to have my father co-sign my trade <laughs> ticket. I won't tell you exactly how old I am, but this was way before internet even existed or internet trading. We were filling out physical paper to <laughs> tickets to make an order. So I did that at age 17. I bought my first little penny stock. I promptly doubled my money and I was an absolute genius. And then a couple of weeks later, the stock fell to almost zero and I was <laughs> less of a genius. <laughs> so that was uh, probably the most valuable tuition <laughs> money I've ever invested. I think it was a $400. No, I think it was a $200 investment. Anyway, so I got started there, did invest mostly in the stock market. Some point along the line there, still pretty early, I discovered Warren Buffett. I've always had a, sort of a, a bias or an affinity towards more value investing than more high risk, but perhaps higher return, you know, type, you know, uh, tech, solar tech, biotech type investing that again, despite the fact that I was working in high tech, I wasn't, I still owned a little bit of Berkshire Hathaway and, and still really liked Warren Buffett's teachings. Yeah. So I've been in investing one way or the other for an awfully long time. And then as you pointed out now, about 14 uh, years ago, actually got a bit out of the stock market and got into real estate and really have been focusing there now ever since. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of money for a 17 year old to take $200 away from going to the mall, going on <laughs> dates, going to the movies or whatever else you're doing with your friends in high school, right? To take $200 and physically go, you can't, you didn't even have the internet in those days, right? Like, so you physically went, you had to be really committed and really have researched it, really have seen the value. And so early on, you were already into it. And then at that point, when you made the decision, you were like, you know what, I want to get out of stocks. I want to do something different. I want to do something Something bigger that will accelerate my growth. And you started looking into real estate and multifamily. Was there a catalyst for that? Was there like something that happened in your life or at work that made you like open your eyes and you were like, oh my gosh, I can't stop doing this? Or was it just a natural progression that eventually like you went into the rabbit hole and you started looking at real estate? <laughs> yeah, it was more of a yeah, natural progression. And so just to be clear, even after I bought that first mobile home park, I still had my day job. I still had my W-2 income for about a year. So there was never a moment when I specifically said, oh my gosh, real estate's so awesome. I'm giving up the, the stock options tomorrow and I'm just going to go do real estate. Again, I had an overlap period there for about a year. I could 
over that time see that the real estate was doing reasonably well. I was putting very little time or money into it. And I could see, frankly, that third startup I was at was not doing very well. So I made the move. And even at that point, I think I was still thinking, well, I'll build up the property and then I'll go back into high tech and you know try and find the next Google and become a billionaire. So here I am 14 years later, uh, not a billionaire, <laughs> but also not through another you know three or four startups that kind of didn't work out. So it was kind of a, a progression. And so I ended up, after buying the first property, ended up consulting to some high net worth families that had interests in manufactured housing. I then, so that was additional income in addition to the property. I then bought a second mobile home park. And I then, after another couple of years, started raising outside capital for a couple other deals and then graduated to a fund structure. So I've now raised three funds and I'm about to launch my next fund here in roughly May of 2021. So yeah, so it's been a, it's been a progression. It wasn't anything exactly sudden or overnight. So now take us back to that point in the story where you started, which was, okay, you went down this path, you wanted to do multifamily, that's what you thought. And then you started seeing, wait a second, all these mobile home parks, these have better cap rates. Why am I not considering that? So tell us about that journey to that first deal with the advisory board in place, looking at different markets, looking at different (coughs) assets. What was, tell us a little bit more about that. So I had looked at some deals from brokers. I had built some, some additional contacts online and uh, you know, came across a couple other deals. I put in some offers. I got outbid on several offers I made. I just decided to not bid on others. Finally, of all places, I found that first deal on eBay. And no uh, kidding. <laughs> yeah. So it was not listed with a broker. I didn't literally like click and PayPal the guy half a million bucks. <laughs> but I picked up the phone and, you know, talked to him and uh, got it under contract and then traveled uh, out to Oklahoma is where it is. And, you know, met him and met a few of the residents and did competitive studies. And from, from that point on, it was a, a fairly normal diligence and closing process. But I did actually find it up on eBay and ended up buying it. I own it to this day. So this is just like shocking. I mean, I had no idea that you could find property on eBay. So how did you even think to go there to look for look for this type of asset? I mean, and second question, are they still doing that today? Because if they are, I'm going to go add that to our source. <laughs> so yeah, you can look. It's certainly not a common place to find things, but I've always been a big fan of eBay and buy a lot of stuff off eBay. So I just figured I'd just kind of look and see what was there and there was a deal. So there aren't many. And certainly as business has gotten more popular, I wouldn't, I haven't seen as many mobile home parks posted there, but you could look there. I actually bought my second deal off Craigslist. So, you know, not as many deals there as well, but you do that. You know, I bought from brokers, which is a more common way. I've done increasingly more uh, sort of proprietary sourcing finding deals off market, just, you know, making phone calls, mailing letters, that kind of thing. So anyway, so there is no single right way to source any kind of deal, be it manufactured housing or otherwise, but that is where I found my, my first couple of deals. 
I love it. Well, it's just a good reminder to everybody who's listening. If you want to get into the space, you know, be resourceful, right? Yeah. Our one of one of our favorite lines from Tony Robbins is it's never a lack of resources, it's a lack of resourcefulness. And I would say that that falls right into that category because I certainly wouldn't have thought to look at Craigslist and eBay. So, I am curious. So, you got into this in 2007. And then what happened, because we all know what happened a year or two later. So you kind of got into it at, I don't know, I guess I want to hear the story. Was it the right time for you? Was it the wrong time? Tell us about what that the next couple of years looked like after that first acquisition. Yeah. So this, this is uh, my perfect business timing (laughs) (laughs) that I buy my first park. And then roughly a year later, we go into the housing crisis So what I found personally was that we remained 95 to 100% full. The housing crisis was actually, I've heard something like 80 some odd percent of all the mortgage defaults were centralized in about 20 zip codes. So very bad, you know, if you were in Las Vegas or Miami or maybe the Eastern part of LA, but frankly, not so bad if you're just in regular old Oklahoma. The regular housing market continued to increase in value in Oklahoma, as it did in much of the Midwest. It slowed, but I'm fairly certain there was still like a 1% increase in housing prices like 07 to 08, 08 to 09. So again, we were not ground zero for that crisis. So we stayed full. We actually bumped up rents about 50% between 2007 and 2010. Now that sounds like a crazy huge number. We were coming off lot rents of $110. So very low, well below market. And we they were up, I believe, at $155 by 2010, which was still a bit below market. But nevertheless, we, we were able to raise rents. We remained full. There's really just always demand for affordable housing. Since gone back and looked at what happened to the stock performance and, and actual financial performance of the big three publicly traded REITs, Uh, There are three of these that specialize in mobile home parks. And what happened with them was that their earnings actually increased. Uh, Their earnings had been steadily increased and their earnings continued to increase. They grew at a slower pace during the 08-09 housing recession, but they did still grow. And then post-recession, of course, the earnings rate picked up even more. It was interesting that again, they had their couple best ever quarters back to back. I think that was Q4 of 08 and Q1 of 09. The public REITs had their best quarters ever right in the middle of the housing recession. The stock, however, sold off. They sold off on average 45%. (laughs) So investors got extremely nervous. But again, ironic that just as the stock is bottoming, the business has its two best ever back-to-back quarters. And of course, has, has recovered nicely since then. So investors got nervous, but the underlying business was really rock solid all the way through that. And again, my experience then just owning one mobile home park was, it was a very stable business and, and the big boys uh, had, had similar results. 
That's so interesting. I feel like uh, a lot of people who were playing in, in that space in the affordable housing, C-class, B-class space back then, I hear the same thing. I love asking that question because I try to not try to figure out what's going to happen moving forward, but I try to understand how did it fare in the last downturn to get a sense of what could happen coming up yeah. if we you know, run into another recession moving forward. So that's so interesting. And it just goes back to what we always talk about, that affordable housing is you know, severely lacking across the, you know, nationally. And so it makes complete sense. So when, so you bought your first one in 2007, when did you buy the second one? I believe that was 2011. Okay. I believe. So there was a little bit of a window of time for three years. Cause so you bought the one park, you were still yeah. working your W2. Uh, so there was two years where you didn't have income, like additional income coming in. Like, well, yeah, I was also work? consulting as well for okay. a couple oh, got it. Of, okay. of high net worth families. So that helped as well. But yeah, that first property, I think I bought it right. It was cash flowing. Mm-hmm. Even when I bought it, what I did then was to take some an additional amount of money now draining my bank account my 401k but I took out additional monies to buy mobile homes and bring them in fix them up now I wasn't the guy swinging the hammer but I was basically my own general contractor overseeing the guy doing the roof and the other guy doing the carpet and on and on Uh, So I actually lived on site in my mobile home park about one third time, about one out of every three weeks, provided, you know, we had a home that was hooked up to electric and I had running water and obviously it provided hadn't sold yet. I'd just sleep on an air mattress in the floor, one of the bedrooms. Wow. And would, You're committed. Would oversee uh, <laughs> oversee my, my crews uh, right. renovating those homes. I don't do that anymore. I've now hired uh, some asset managers uh, to do that work. And I don't actually make them sleep in the trailers. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, speak between, to that. Speak to know. that. Because I think, you know, like you were talking about early on, you were looking at a multifamily, you saw these uh, mobile home parks, and you were like, I'm not going to invest in a trailer yeah. park. Right. Yeah. So I think there's yeah. that perception. And then that, before too long, I'm, I'm yeah. living in one. <laughs> right, right. So tell us yeah. about that. I mean, what was it like? What is it really the, the perception that people have? Or are they can they be really nice? communities to live in. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that's made this an interesting business is that, frankly, so many people turn their noses up at it and say just, oh, my gosh, you know, must be nothing but like drugs and guns and prostitution. And how could you ever do that? And, you know, maybe the bottom one or two percent of mobile home parks are that bad. But frankly, probably the bottom one or two percent of apartment buildings or site built houses are that bad. The bottom couple percent of everything uh, is going to be pretty rough. So my community, that first one, and really none of the parks that I've bought since, none of them would be that rough. Uh, That would be really sort of a one star, as we would call it, or zero star uh, park. So everything I've bought kind of on a scale of roughly one to five, mostly have been some two, three, and four star Uh, parks. I've maybe got a four and a half star park in there in the portfolio. But yeah, that first park was full of hardworking folks, a fair number of children. It was a decent school district. We brought in three bedroom houses specifically to make room for more families. That's really been our bread and butter has been, again, families, two, three kids, occasionally four kids, 
but but families making thirty to thirty five thousand dollars a year. So the houses I brought in were generally used homes. Generally, they needed fix up, but then I was still able to put them on rent to own agreements at much less money than had I brought in brand new homes. So yeah, things went fine. There were no crazy shootings or drug busts or any of that stuff while I was sleeping and living in the park, nor frankly, ever since. The business gets a bad reputation, but that it's really undeserved. Virtually everybody are just decent, hardworking folks. I'm curious, can you explain to the listeners what the star ratings are and what the differences are? Because I assume it's kind of similar to a multifamily where we have like, you know, A class, B class, C class, and then D class. Can you explain how that relates to mobile home parks? Yeah, so it's a bit colloquial and there, you know, there isn't like really hard and fast rules about what kind of exactly is a two versus three star. But let's just say at the high end, your five star parks are going to be maybe just the top 5%. Those are going to be parks typically coastal, typically California or Florida. So again, typically coastal, they would typically have a really good size swimming pool in uh, probably also like a recreation hall which you know would have other showers, laundry facility, and then just a fairly large room, a rec hall, so that residents can be you know playing bingo or doing karaoke night or what have you. Sounds so that, fun. That's I want to live in one of those. <laughs> yeah, I was just yeah. thinking that. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just again. I'm here in in San Antonio today. I was just down in Brownsville where we bought a couple of parks that have all that. They're seniors parks. I wouldn't say they're quite five-star, but they're like four-star parks. They've got smaller pool. They've got a rec hall. My wife and I were up on stage uh, singing uh, Baby It's Cold Outside, the man-woman duet, and they did a bingo night and they did a, you know, oh, we did a parade for uh, St. Patty's Day last week through one of the two parks with everybody decorating their golf carts green and wearing green, nice. you know, St. Patty's Day outfits and, and driving through the park with our own parade. So our our kids got to march in the parade, although part of the time they were just driven along on one of the golf carts. <laughs> but anyway, so that kind of thing does happen. And that doesn't make the news, right? Again, mm-hmm. park, mobile home parks have an undeservedly bad reputation because when there is a drug bust or something bad happens, the media right. tends to flock all over that. There were no cameras there as, you know, my kids were marching in the St. Patty's Day parade with their squirt guns, right. squirting daddy. You know, that didn't make the news. The, the good news, uh, unfortunately, on many fronts, the good news no longer seems to make it into the news. But anyway, so that's kind of four-star. One-star parks then, again, are going to be just much older, rundown parks, probably with dirt roads, and probably a lot of folks that are renting the mobile homes. They cannot afford to own it themselves. Mm -hmm. And again, we tend to stay away from that or to try and upgrade those parks and sell the homes to people that can afford them. But again, at the other end of what you would have, sort of a zero or one star park would be, again, dirt roads, typically in a poorer economy, much more rundown homes, no pool, no shuffleboard, no amenities of any sort. We'll get back to our conversation with Jefferson in just a minute. Have 
you been thinking about investing in real estate but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now back to our chat with Jefferson Lilly. No shuffleboard? Come on. No, no <laughs> pool. Oh my goodness. What are we going to do? Um, so I know that at some point you uh, shifted, as you mentioned, to, so I'm assuming that first park you bought on your own with your own money, no yes. investors, right? So yes. at what point did you transition to syndication? Question one. And then question two, would love to learn a little bit more about your investment strategy and your philosophies around raising money and, you know, taking money from, uh, from investors. I'm always curious to hear, yeah. you know, that perspective from sponsors. Julie, I prefer the term raising money from investors rather than <laughs> taking it. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Uh, but uh, yeah. And, and sometimes investors will ask me, so have you spent my money yet? I say, <laughs> I don't think I'm spending it. I think I'm investing it, but <laughs> time will tell. But yeah, so it was really then after I did those first couple deals that I then partnered up with somebody who had also an interest in real estate and raising funds. So what we did then was to start, we found a property and we formed uh, an LLC and syndicated, raised money. It was, I believe we raised 450000 for that first deal. It was just one deal that was out in Ottawa, Kansas of all places. We've actually just exited it and generated very nice double digit returns for the last seven years for our investors. But we got started small, frankly. So we found it hard to raise money initially. I will say for your listeners that are maybe going down that path, it does get easier. <laughs> you know, I now have people that email me on an almost weekly basis wanting to know when my next fund is coming up. So that's a wonderful change from where we were seven years ago, where frankly, we had a major, what we thought was going to be our lead investor pull out 
and we had to raise money from others. But we, we did that the right way. We had an attorney involved who was experienced with crowdfunding money. And so we had proper documents. We, of course, made the diligence available to folks that were investing with us. I believe we raised money from seven people or seven entities, one of which might have been a two-person partnership. But we then did two more of those deals, what we call deal by deals. And then after having that initial success, three deals over about six months, we then graduated to the fund structure which works, you know, in obviously a very similar manner, except now we're raising more money and buying more properties and our investors get some diversification across multiple mobile home parks rather than just being in, in one single deal. So tell me a little bit about your overall investment philosophy. Like what types oh. of deals do you guys go after? Why? Yeah. What's your hold period? Talk to us about that. Yeah, so we are obviously a for-profit entity here at, at Park Avenue Partners. We, however, also do have a social mission, which is to expand the supply of affordable housing. So, and frankly, it's nice when a worthy social mission can also line up with what's right for your pocketbook. So we're blessed to have that alignment. So a typical property for us would be, say, roughly a 100-pad mobile home park that might be, let's say, uh, might have, say, roughly 80 resident-owned mobile homes in it, might have, say, five abandoned mobile homes, and then might have, say, 15 vacant mobile home park pads. So we will go after the low-hanging fruit first, which is to say we'll renovate those roughly five mobile homes. We'll put those out on rent-to-own agreements, typically for around 2000 a month. Typically, total payments are going to be 700 a month, maybe a little less, and folks will probably own that house in three to five years. So we don't keep folks indebted on like a 30-year mortgage. We want them to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So we'll get that done, and then we'll go about buying probably brand new homes, but sometimes later model used homes, and we'll bring in, and it'll take several years, but we'll bring in those roughly additional 15 homes. And again, only put those out for sale, typically on rent-to-own agreements. We do also work with, with an outside finance company, so sometimes it's a, a regular mortgage. But one way or the other, even with the nice new homes, we're helping people get into a house almost always for less than $900 a month, maybe with just $5,000 down. They're probably going to own that in 10 years, 15 at the most. And again, that compares quite favorably to local apartments that would be typically 1200 a month for like a three-bedroom house. Again, we're typically able to get people on the path to ownership for around 900 a month. And once they own it, of course, they own it. Then they just pay the lot rent. Or if they choose to move the house, say, onto their own land, you know, it's their business. That's their house at that point. But we help people live for less than what they would otherwise pay in, a, in an apartment in our markets. And so we're generally looking for markets that would have, say, average house price of $100,000 and up. And we're typically looking to be within, say, five miles of a super Walmart. 
and typically on all city utilities, city water, city sewer. Sometimes we'll deviate from that, but typically we're looking for all city utilities. And again, where we can find a property reasonably priced that that has that kind of upside from rehab and infill of homes and is in a reasonably economically healthy area, then we really dig in and, and see if there's a deal to be had. So is that model pretty typical to what you guys are doing, the rent to own model for your residents? Yeah, that's what I've done almost all the way along. When I bought that first park, I did also rent and basically did anything for a buck. (laughs) So I used to also rent. What I found was that renters are much rougher on the homes. Mm -hmm. And while I was making money on it, I was also valuing my time at zero, which I think is a mistake a lot of landlords make. And when you start budgeting in for like, how much time am I really spending overseeing a crew to come in again to rehab that house again in less than two years because the renters were disrespectful, all of a sudden you're not really making that much money renting. So I no longer rent. And again, it had always been my vision that really helping people to become homeowners was really the right and better path. Ever more convinced of that, having seen that, again, folks that have a shot at homeownership, they do mm-hmm. almost all, not all, but almost all tend to take much better care of, of the homes when, when they're on a path to owning it. Right. I love that. It's a win-win for you, win-win for them, and everybody's on top. And it probably is a you know, feeling of winning for your investors too. I mean, you know, knowing that when you're investing and you're helping to make the world a better place, you know, there's no greater feeling than that for us as well. So I love that. Tell us when you're evaluating an opportunity, what are kind of the top three things that you look at when you're evaluating an opportunity? Is it population growth? Is it job growth? Is it income? Is it What are sort of like the key metrics that you're really looking for to say, yes, this is like a home run deal or no, it's not? You know, we kind of look at things in a holistic fashion. It's difficult to say like exactly what the best things are. You know, I've always said, frankly, only half flippantly, but half seriously, there are no bad mobile home park deals. They're just bad prices to pay. So we can get excited about a property that might not be otherwise that that great of a deal. Maybe in, you know, maybe there isn't a lot of growth. Maybe it isn't within five miles of a super Walmart. But if it's priced right, again, that can cure a lot of uh, ills. But again, in general, we're we're looking for if we're within five miles of a super Walmart, we're fairly certain the economy is at least flat. We don't actually need a great growing economy to make money. We've found that we can, again, bring in houses as long as the economy is reasonably stable, that can be just flat, that what will offer homeownership for, you know, two to $5,000 down and 900 a month, that resonates, again, even in more regular markets that are fairly flat. So again, say where the average house price is 100000 and up, we're within five miles of a super Walmart. We're on all city utilities, city water, city sewer. Those would be key things. And, and again, then if it's priced, re- reasonably priced, then again, we're, we're going to dig in and see if we can, can make a deal for us and for our sellers. We also accommodate folks that are selling. Some, many want just a pile of cash. 
which is understandable. We can do that. We've closed quickly for all cash, but we can also have a more lengthy close if a seller wants to be accommodated for a 1031. You know, we're happy to do that as well. We try to be easy to sell to. So those are things we also take into account, you know, what the seller dynamic is. That must cut out a lot of competition too, with the, if you're looking in areas where there's more flat growth rather than, you know, going after these other areas where it can be really competitive, where people are, you know, going after the job growth and the population growth and just general, you know, specific market growth too. And so that must, do you find that that's true as well? I'd say so. We tend to not buy in A-tier markets. You know, we're not buying in and around the New York City or Los Angeles or Denver, Chicago metro areas. There are frankly precious few mobile home parks left that, you know, haven't already been developed into some other higher and better use. Yeah. And so again, we find we do quite well right now. Over the last year or so, we've bought in places like Sioux City, Iowa, Roswell, New Mexico, Pocatello, Idaho, Brownsville, Texas, I just mentioned. We found we've been able, those are certainly secondary and even tertiary markets, but that doesn't mean that they aren't growing. I wouldn't say any of those really are even flatlining. I think you do see job growth, income growth, population growth, but indeed it's not uh, Silicon Valley growth. I Mm -hmm. used to work in Silicon Valley, but do not own any of the remaining few mobile home parks in Silicon Valley. We just don't need crazy growth to have a very healthy rate of return. So we're, again, happy in secondary and tertiary markets. Nice, nice. Okay, last question before we move on. I'm always curious about this. and want to know the answer for you. Are there any deals that you've done over the last 14 years, 13, 14 years that have gone sideways? And if they have, how did you handle that situation? Yes. My very first deal went sideways. It was Mm. on uh, private utilities. In particular, it had a sewage lagoon. And even though I got it in writing from the local government, the Department of Environmental Quality at Oklahoma, that it had been built to code, it was not built to code. (laughs) So Mm. I had to invest about half a million dollars bringing that sewage lagoon up to code. That was obviously a big hit to my finances. I borrowed some from the bank. My other deals and consulting were doing reasonably well. So I also just cash flowed some of those expenses by just reinvesting the profits from the deal back into the deal. But had something like that happened earlier on to me, that really could have been financially fatal. So my advice is, I guess, Unless you're an experienced investor with deeper pockets, stay away from private utilities. Anybody, again, thinking about buying their first property, just go with something that's all city water and all city sewer. And then maybe later (laughs) you can think about expanding. And if the price is right, buying some of those properties on private utilities. You just, you cannot trust anything that government does or says or even puts in writing. You've got to be very careful. So, all right. You so heard you- it, all of our listeners. <laughs> don't buy those sewage lagoons. <laughs> Sounds like a <laughs> sticky situation. <laughs> so, you, wow. So, you, you do that first deal and you get, you go in the hole half a million dollars. Where did you find the, 
persistence to want to continue after that. I mean, you know, most people would be like, oh my gosh, what am I getting myself into? I just made the biggest mistake. This is not for me. How'd you get beyond that? You know, I guess I'm just too dumb to stay down. I just always get (laughs) back up and plod through it. The property, when that happened and when the government changed around on us and said, no, never mind what we put in writing, it is not built to code. Again, I was many years into it. So the property was already cash flowing better. And I had even higher and and bigger hopes and dreams for it. And I just wasn't going to let this stop me. So uh, fortunately, I had a bank that was working with me. They understood the problem. It was not my fault. And and so they lent a, a good chunk of that money that I needed. And again, I just cash flowed as well out, let the property cash flow. I stopped paying myself out of the property. But I had a pretty clear vision for for what its potential was. And we were on the path to doing that. It's a fairly healthy economy out there, again, with with demand for affordable housing. So, you know, you've just got it to roll with some of those lumps. That's, you know, nothing that I ever got a thank you note for, for any of my tenants, right? I could have just walked away, declared bankruptcy, or just said, hey, we're just going to close it down. And we're going to, you know, redevelop this into farmland or, you know, a small little strip mall or something else. I mean, I, I could have just shut it down and kicked everybody out, but I just didn't feel that was the right path. So we got a, a plan together and we worked through it and got the property to, to where it is today. It's appraised now for about three times what I paid for it. So even with that sewage lagoon debacle, it's, you know, still a, certainly a decent property and cash flows. So Such a good reminder. I always say that, you know, if there's one sort of trait that you need to have when you invest in real estate, it's persistence because real estate is going to present you with challenges, uh, you know, all the time. And if you don't have that persistence to move forward, you're not going to last very long in the space. So such a good reminder of that. All right. We're going to move into the life and money spotlight round. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money. What is one thing that you're doing to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? Well, being uh, now really focused on investing in real estate certainly gives us a fair amount of flexibility, our whole family. Again, as I've mentioned, I'm coming to you live from San Antonio right now, where we are for a couple of days, kind of on a family vacation. But my wife and I, well, mostly my wife, homeschools our kids. That's by design. So we have the flexibility now to be on the road here, San Antonio, Brownsville for a couple of weeks keep the kids in school. But, you know, the mobile home parks did come with uh, a couple of swimming pools. So we also, you know, had some family fun in in the pools. So that's all by design that we have that lifestyle. And again, we've been homeschooling since pre-COVID, since before homeschooling was cool. So again, that gives (laughs) us a, a lot of flexibility to just do it in an RV, you know. Anyway, so there you go. Having that kind of flexibility and family focus is something that real estate uh, allows us. We're quite blessed to, to be able to do that. I love that. You know, I've heard you mention that now two times that you have, you know, enjoyed your properties alongside of your residence. And that's so awesome. They must love having you there and seeing that you're there enjoying it alongside with them. And what a great way to, you know, create that sense of community together in ownership. I love that. It's been fun. Yeah. Love it. 
All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that will make an impact in others' lives right now? So I would say transitioning from, I've sort of colloquially called uh, real estate 1.0 to real estate 2.0. And I've, and it's still an ongoing process, but you know, there was a time as, as I alluded to when I was doing almost everything myself, I wasn't actually swinging a hammer, but I was overseeing those guys. I was doing my own accounting on QuickBooks. I was answering the phones when tenants had questions. I was posting ads up on Craigslist myself and you can do that. It's probably a valuable way to start, but I guess my advice is to transition quickly to real estate 2.0, which is where you're then managing other people doing that kind of accounting and phone answering and marketing and asset management work. So as soon as you can do that, do it. It'll help you grow. Even if in the short run, you're paying out a little more salaries and whatnot. It's the only way to grow. You know, if I hadn't done that, I'd still be managing just my first one or two parks. They would have gotten to be a nearly full-time job. So transition out of doing everything yourself to uh, getting to that real estate 2.0, where you're really managing people that in turn manage your, your hopefully growing portfolio of properties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. We just spent the last five days at Tony Robbins Business Mastery talking about this very topic and shifting right. from being an operator to being an owner. And if you really want to be able to scale and you know make an impact in other people's lives, you know, you've know you got to be able to make that shift so you can help more people. Um, otherwise, you're just going to be so heads down in, in the one thing that you're doing instead of being able to do 100 different things. So 100% agree with that. All right. Last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? Provide affordable housing. Yeah. We're helping folks 30, 35,000 a year income get out of the game of paying rent in an apartment forever and getting yeah. into a home that they are going to own and immediately pay less money and mm -hmm. pay way less money in the long run once they own that house. That's what we do for society. Amen. What a big impact you're making. So Jefferson, share with our listeners, if they want to follow up with you and learn more about all that you're doing, what's the best place they can go to learn more? Uh, two places. So our main website is parkavenuepartners.com. Right at the top center of that page is a button they can click to join our mailing list and keep in touch with the deals that we're doing and the upcoming fund launch and whatnot. So parkavenuepartners.com. Secondly, if they want to learn more about potentially buying parks on their own, go to mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. That website will link them through to our podcast. We started the industry's first mobile home park podcast, and it'll also link them through to our LinkedIn group. We're the largest group on LinkedIn, over 6,000 members just trading tips and tricks around mobile home park ownership. And I also publish the industry's calendar of events, trade shows and whatnot. So all of that can come off mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. Plus my LinkedIn link is there. So connect with me uh, that way as well. Awesome. Well, for all our listeners, we'll have those in our show notes. Jefferson Lilly, mobile home park investment expert and educator and co-founder of Park Avenue Partners. Jefferson, thank you so much for being here with us today. 
You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations. 